This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Joyful, joyful. You're in the Spirit Lounge on Joy 94.9. This is the show where we talk about spirituality and sexuality for our community. Good evening, faithful listeners. Instead of a... uh, You've got Claudine, Rachel and Mark here tonight. And instead of a holy day, this week we're starting off and we're going to spend the whole hour celebrating a different kind of special day. So Tuesday was International Women's Day, which, though it's not a holiday, it I think has is a public holiday in some there are in some countries where it's a public holiday and people give presents to women possibly. If not, I think that should be the case. Yes, definitely. We we had cake. We had cake in the Joy Studio, so at least somebody was was thinking of us <laughs> as um, women and our. And our appetites on Tuesday. But that of course, we shared our cake with the lovely gentlemen that were also in the Joy Studios. But women had it first. But women did get first serve. And, and the men had to offer to make cups of tea. <laughs> yes, and I think they cleaned up after us as well. So a very appropriate celebration of International Women's Day. And we're continuing the spirit tonight. And we're, we will be looking at women in religion, especially in the Bible. We've got a special guest tonight, the Reverend Emily Payne, an Anglican priest who's based in Black Rock. Hello, Emily. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you here. So um, as we've seen in, in the last couple of weeks, Christianity's got a bit of a an image problem, has a bit of a ha- certain parts of the church and some traditions have had issues with dealing fairly with certain members of the community and women is certainly one of those one of those areas and I think um, I thought about putting this about getting this program tonight because I'm Rachel and I have talked a bit about issues like inclusive language in the Bible and in services so I think language and gender is is a big continuing issue for a lot of people, for a lot of communities, for religious communities and others. Definitely. And a good example of that was on Tuesday when we all took a photo, Claudine was wearing a shirt that had God on it and Claudine said, oh, I hope you don't mind God's in the photo. And then someone automatically just said, oh, he's everywhere, isn't he? And then we went, she, because God can be. Yeah, I, I totally forgot. I forgot about that. I, like, I hadn't. I'd put on that t-shirt just thinking I'm having a casual day off, and forgot that. Didn't think that Betty would be there with the camera. So, <laughs> but it's uh, it's a conversation starter in any case. Um, that's actually that t-shirt also had a few questions like, "Is God feminist?" So uh, we might get there tonight, or we might we might not make it there. So let's let's see how far we go in an hour. As I was saying to Emily before, you know, either of us could have tried starting to write a PhD thesis on um, language and gender in religion. So we've only got uh, just under an hour. So we'll 
started at more of a basic level, perhaps. Um, I will say that uh, the first time I met Emily was in theological school where we were both studying New Testament Greek. So, um, and I think Emily's kept it up, whereas <laughs> I haven't had as much use for it. But let's let's get back to to that. Where um, where did the Bible? Okay, not where did the Bible come from, but how did we end up with the the Bible that we have or that we might be familiar with today? Mm. What's the kind of you know what's the origins? I think the first thing for people to realise is that we often talk about the Bible in the singular as if it is a book which kind of descended as if by miracle into the hands of human beings. But it's not. It's a collection of books. Uh, Exactly how many you accept depends on which flavour of Christian or indeed Jew or some other groups as well you are, but it's a collection of books written over about a thousand years in two or three different languages, in different places, in different cultural contexts, addressing different concerns. So before you can ask, what does the Bible say about any particular issue, like the status of women, you've got to realise that you're going to get a number of answers from a number of different contexts in a number of different voices. Is that sort of where you wanted to start? Yeah, and um, so, you know, saying that we started off studying Greek together, but you... Um, so I think of, we talk about um, nowadays the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament, um, but you said I think two or three languages. That there might there be are more. some sections which, for which the earliest texts we have are Aramaic or Coptic. And what's Aramaic? It's not a language we uh, use No, it's not, days. sorry. Uh, the, the place most people would be familiar with Aramaic actually is from the Passion of the Christ. Because they were going back to the Bible. Because they were going back, well, not to the Bible in that case, but to the common language of the mm-hmm. time. Aramaic is the, the kind of lingua franca that people around the area where Jesus lived were speaking in Jesus' time. It's probably what he actually spoke day to day. And is is that related to um, Hebrew? Uh, or yes, that? it is. And I'm not a linguist, linguistic expert, so I'm going to back off there. It's one of the Semitic languages. So it uses the same script as Hebrew. Uh-huh. Um, and it's still used in synagogues. One of our central prayers is in Aramaic. Oh wow! Your your funeral prayer is Aramaic, That's isn't it? One, yeah, yep. it, 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 yeah. It's it's used as a funeral prayer amongst others. Okay, so it was. So would um, would the Hebrew that the Bible was written in was that more of a um, religious language or more formal language? By Jesus' time it was, yes. It was the language of the synagogue, but not the language that Simon Peter would be talking when he's, you know, coordinating fishing nets with his brothers. Fascinating. <laughs> well, don't forget that the, the Hebrew Bible is actually, a, like in Jewish tradition is copying the Hebrew Bible. So every edition of the Torah scrolls are exactly the same because you don't, you don't write it from memory. You literally copy it. Um, so the Hebrew text in that way is it's been fixed for a long time because it's copying when i talk about from a hebrew from a jewish perspective we're talking about the first five books um so yeah so it it but that that hebrew is quite a formal way of writing it if you went to israel today the the hebrew that you speak in israel is it sounds similar but it is actually different it has lots more words obviously um than the as would be the case with greek i imagine modern greek would have a whole piles of vocabulary that that biblical greek wouldn't of course but i think what's um perhaps um not knowing anything about the hebrew bible 
myself. What I'm, well, beyond first semester introduction to the Hebrew Bible, um, I'm getting the sense that um, it's it's different for the Christian New Testament, whereas um, where it's more of an oral tradition that you know, it wasn't written down for a while, um, and there was still, um, or maybe I'm misunderstanding about the about the Hebrew original um, for the for the first five for the first five books. Um, where would those? Um, Either Mark or Emily or indeed Rachel, what where would have been what what would have been the first Hebrew text that that we know of? When was it? Would you like to pick that one up? Or I'm trying to remember. It's um, I think the oldest Torah scroll is from Yemen that we can date, um, but I can't think how old it is. I recently read that the earliest Hebrew scriptures we have extant are dated to. Approximately 800 BC. Okay, um, so that's so, yeah. that's actually quite recent then. I mean, relatively <laughs> compared to relative the, to the events they prepared to record yeah. in places. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might come to to some of those um, some of those events that were um, supposedly dis- described in the Bible. And you are on the Spirit Lounge on Joy 94.9 with Claudine, Rachel, Mark and our special guest tonight, Emily. And we're talking about International Women's Day and the Bible and how it all meshes in together. And we want to know if there is any spiritual women that have been in your life that are important to you. We would love to hear about them. So send us a message on 0427 Joy 949. You can email on air at joy.org.au or if you're listening via the app, just use the contact button. Or if you've got questions for Emily, please feel free to send those through as well. I don't promise to know all the answers. What? You're a priest and you don't know everything? Really, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, spot the, spot the cynicism there. Sorry. Um, so we've, we were talking earlier about the, the languages that the Bible was written in, um, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic and Coptic even? Which is I think there's some very early texts where the, the oldest, best text we have are Coptic. They probably weren't written in Coptic, but that's what we've got. So um, anyone who's learnt or spoken a different language know that translation's not an exact science, that things, there's things that either don't have an equivalent or – and there's other um, – there's various reasons why translating something from the original Hebrew or Greek or into English is is can be complicated. And in fact, we I think I'm not sure exactly how many trans, English translations of the Bible there are. But um, would it be fair to say there are hundreds or at least oh absolutely tens? no yeah. hundreds. So um, why do we have all these translations? And what what are, what are some of the how, what's what are the differences? The main differences? Uh, a couple of different reasons. Some of them are about theological bias. So you'll have uh, translations which are geared more towards more liberal biases or more conservative biases or particular denominational concerns in particular. But other reasons too, for example, some translations are produced specifically with a relatively small English vocabulary to be good for people for whom English is not a first language Um, or geared particularly at particular language groups, that sort of thing. So what are some of the examples of the, um, I guess, more accessible or simpler translations? Uh, something like a good news 
Bible was produced specifically for people for whom people without sophisticated English. Mm-hmm. Can I put it that way? Yep. Um, or you have things like oh, the name of it's gone out of my head, but the one that was done in Aussie slang. Does oh. anyone remember the name of that one? It's not the Surface Bible, is it? Or am I? No. <laughs> uh, never mind. It'll but, come back to me. But he he did the Gospel of Luke in in Aussie slang. And it was quite remarkable the impact this had on people who said, for the first time I felt like the Bible was speaking my language, Mm. that sort of thing. I personally have like four or five different versions of the Bible myself from, you know, being given Bibles as a kid, which are have pictures and stuff and then I have that preteen bible which is called the wonder bible which has like it has the most beautiful images but they're not on every page there's like one every 600 pages or something um but it's got bigger writing and then it has little thought things to the side and then obviously like when I graduated the high school I went to gave me like a really official leather backed bible and Mm -hmm. stuff and it was yeah all official so just I know there's so many just in my own bookshelf. When I did theology, um, when I did Christology and theology, we used to use the New American Bible to um, read for an academic purpose. But if you were reading out, you used the new revised standard additional version, the NSR, whatever NRSV? it's called. Yeah, that's the one. So, <laughs> we, so we were we would read, we would use, quote one, but read from another one if you were ever doing an oral presentation. And oh, was, that sounds confusing. <laughs> Was that like like rules? You have to do that. Like, what happens if you read from the the other one, the more complicated one? Our lecturers would have told us to go and get the other one and read from that one. Oh wow! Um, and now I'm trying to remember why. It's going back a little bit. I think it was to do with um, the new revised is a better sounds better when it's read out, whereas the new American is, I think linguistically closer to the original text. I think that's what it'd be. And I can remember at times, we might have done it as an exercise, I can't remember that much, about looking at where it varied in terms of its language. And you could get slightly different meanings if you looked at it hard enough. So we were um, playing with our, with props earlier, um, as Emily's brought an NRSV today. So um, is that your preferred translation? It's my preferred translation for public worship and my preferred translation for my own sort of private devotional reading. I might use other translations for other specific purposes. So um, one of the, when I, um, when I first read, first encountered the NRSV, that's when I first came across inclusive language. There's a lot of, uh, I think that's one of the things that the new, new revised standard version is known for is that there's a lot of, um, you know, the, a letter to the brothers and sisters is um, a lot yes, of, a lot of that. inclusive. Um, and I think that some of the um, – it's been criticised for that for by some other traditions. It is to some extent an interpretation. Where in the Greek you have – and this comes out a lot particularly in Paul's letters where he's writing to the Adelphoi, the brothers. And the translators have said, well, Paul's not actually just writing to the men in the congregations. He's actually writing to the whole community. So we're going to make that explicit and obvious by saying brothers and sisters. But brothers and sisters is not what's in the Greek. It, they're, they're expanding on what they think that Paul meant when he wrote that word. Mm. So does that Bible still refer to God as he? Well, 
Yes, it does most of the time. But what a lot of people don't understand is that there are quite a few places in the Bible where God or aspects of God are referred to as explicitly feminine. I'll defer to Mark on the Hebrew for the Holy Spirit. I have heard is feminine. Or have, am I incorrect about that? Um, you put me on the spot, and I'm trying to remember. I, th- I you probably are right. God in the Jewish tradition doesn't have a gender because God's not defined in that way. Mm-hmm. So, if you look at this now, you might know this better than I do, Emily. There's what 360 different names for God, or some quite incredible number. Yes, and. And in the Hebrew tradition, some of them will be masculine, some of them will be feminine, in the same way that you would have masculine and feminine in French. So in French, the word for door, I believe, is feminine. Uh-huh. Um, and it doesn't actually mean anything other than it's just what prefixes It's grammatical gender, it's a, yeah. not biological gender. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of different. But then that said, we shouldn't dismiss and say, well, Judaism is all inclusive because certainly some of our prayers are not. And in the progressive or the liberal tradition that I've come, that I go belong to, we've altered some of the things so that um, where you refer to what we call the patriarchs, which are the, you know, the men of the families, we also now refer to the matriarchs as well. So we include them by name. So it's not just a Christian sort of um, area. It, it affects Judaism in, in, in a similar but different way. Mm. But there are other things, for example, divine wisdom across a whole range of books, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, is consistently portrayed as a woman. So the wisdom of God active in creation, the wisdom of God active throughout Israel's salvation history and all of those kinds of things, portrayed as a woman. Am I also correct in saying that the church has been referred to as the bride? Oh, yes. Yes, see, I know stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so that's um, that would be... After the Bible, that's that. I, I no, it's biblical. It's Paul. Oh, Claudine. you see, this is this is why this is why Emily's a priest and I'm not. Well, but, it's one of the reasons. But it's consistent with if you look at the if you look at the letters of Paul, you you can start to see in that very early church, and I've probably jumped a little bit ahead, but you can see that there are female leaders in the in the early church. The one that jumps to mind, just because I happened to have done an essay on it in uni, was is Prisca. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the references to Prisca and Aquila, and even just the way they're referenced in the Bible shows that Prisca, we would argue, is was certainly the leader of the church at at that time. So it's yeah, it's interesting that you can get you can call these things out of the Bible, and that's what theology often does. But it also builds on that linguistic stuff. Can we? Um can we remember? Can you remember what the story of Prisca and Aquila? Or um, because I'm I'm aware of it, but it's not immediately jumping to my mind. But I, th- I know that it's used as as a model. I frequently. think there are two key things about Prisca and Aquila. They're a married couple, um, ministering in the early church. So they recorded their their works are recorded in Acts. And one of the two key things is that Prisca is almost always listed first. So she's seen to be the more socially superior, the probably the wealthier party to the marriage and has kind of more standing in the church. We, the, the church met in their home and it's quite possible given the dynamics of worship in the very early church that she presided over their worship. The other thing is that we see mention of Prisca and Aquila teaching Apollos who was another early church leader. So he came to faith and one of his primary teachers is this woman. So there's there's evidence here for women in teaching and leadership roles. And is that something that um, is contested or is that uh, that other people have 
I don't is think Prisca's role is is contested very much. Some people might contest that she presided over worship because the question of exactly what these women in leadership roles were and were not doing and what does it mean to preside anyway and and what exactly was happening in these home churches is all very much speculative reconstruction. We're talking about feminism and the Bible and language and gender for International Women's Day today. So if you've got any questions or comments about religion and language or any examples of inspiring women in the Bible or in or in religious history, don't forget to text us on 0427 JOY949 or email us on air at joy.org.au or just use the contact button on your smartphone app if you've got a smartphone. And so I thought we'd, um, with our special guest, Emily, we thought we'd go back to some of the fundamental issues about religion and talk about the creation story or apparently the creation stories. So um, what's this about Eve coming out of Adam's rib? Okay. Um, Sorry, I, I kind was, of I feel like that I kind of feel like where do we have to start with this? Um, can I start by saying it's myth? Is mm-hmm. is that a helpful thing to say? Like this you is, mean we don't have scientific evidence for Adam and Eve? No, we don't. And and I'm going to say straight out, you know, I I actually accept evolution as being a correct account of how things probably came to where we are now. I think you've you've even got a science wow. degree. I do have a science degree, um, but that's kind of. Not relevant to the creation myth, but there you go. The, I mean, there's you. You can be a Christian and believe in evolution, which I think some people aren't sure about. Oh yes, yes, and most of us actually do. Yeah, um, but that's not what you're asking me about here. So, yes, having said that, it's myth, or more accurately, it's myths. In the first few chapters of Genesis, we get a couple of different stories about. So, how did we get to where we are, and why is the world the way it is, and and kind of narrative reflections on those questions posed uh, you know kind of framed as creation accounts but I think it's fair to say that um, sort of 19th century fundamentalist onwards aside nobody's taken them as history mm-hmm. anyway um, so the rib um, oh. yes there are two stories the first story is actually the kind of egalitarian go-to story because it's it's God saying, let us make humankind in our own image, according to our own likeness, and let them have dominion, yada, yada, yada. So God created humankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. In his own image. Well, yes, but that goes back to the point about grammatical versus biological gender. Or in God's own image. Yeah, in God's own image. But the point is there's no sense here of women being subordinate. It's male and female together together. In the image of God. So does that mean that God's... Well, Mark was talking about God not having gender, but could it be taken to be God has all gender? I think you could certainly take it that way, yes. Or pangender. We'd say that God is not defined, so therefore you're right, God has all genders and no genders at the same time. I find this discussion really interesting because at the same time, um, so we're made in God's image, but God is not a human, a, not a, yeah, not a human being. Um, 
so I've always found that really confusing. I was part of a group of people once who someone said, I imagine God being like this orb of just everythingness. And so if you just imagine like this glowing orb of everything, that is God. And then it comes back to that, well, if we're made in God's image, does that mean we're like glowing orbs of everythingness? So I find it really interesting and I, I look forward to the day where I can meet God and actually know, does God have an image? That's that's my question. Well, the, the interesting thing is that up to this point, the one thing that we know about God is that God is creative. So one of the things that it means to me to be made in God's image is that we are we are endowed with creative power, that we are creative beings and not just limited to being like programmed robots. Okay. That's fair. Uh, it's not a whole answer. It's just yes. the beginnings yeah. of an answer. Yeah. But we, we have more than one creation story in the Bible. We do, and we turn the page and we get to another account which we think was probably put together by someone else at another time in another place before they were edited together. And this is, this is the classic, you know, God forms Adam out of the ground and brings all the animals to Adam and finds that none of the animals is a suitable helper. So Adam falls into a deep sleep and God takes a rib and, you know, et voila, we have a lovely woman and she's a suitable helper and isn't it wonderful? Um, you, should see the, you should see the look on Emily's face when she says that. <laughs> it's very difficult to convey tone over the radio sometimes. Um, so there, there, this, is, this is where we get some of the more pro- problematic stuff about women having come out of man, women being a suitable helper. What does it mean for a woman to be a helper and that kind of thing? The one point I'd really be keen to make about that is that the word that we use here for a helper is not a word of someone necessarily who is subordinate or submissive. This is a word actually that's elsewhere used of God who helps people. So it's it's a suitable helper, but it's not it's not kind of, you know, a woman go and pick up my socks. It's it's being joined in mission together, actually. So um does that mean that there were no animals in the first creation story? Oh, now you've, I've got to go back and turn back a page and check. Whilst Emily's looking at that, it's interesting this first creation story is often used in the liberal Jewish tradition to um, justify um, the liberal Jewish tradition's stance in terms of the LGBTI community. It's that phrase, created in my image, so therefore you are perfect like God is perfect, and therefore you are what you are, and that is in itself a valuable item. So it's interesting. I just, it's, a, it's a bit of a side step, but I thought I was give Emily a couple of moments to sort of find the exact reference. Thank you. Much appreciated. And I think that's, I mean, that's, that's often you, that, that kind of idea is used, you know, for a lot of Christ, you know, inclusive Christians as well. It's, we, don't, we, we start off from the fact that we're made in God's image and God saw that it was good. And so that, that's a starting point for, for our belief. Uh, the animals in the first creation account, and thank you for asking me that because I hadn't noticed this before. In that account, you get God saying, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and that's where the animals come from. But when it comes to making the humans, then God said, let us make humankind in our own image. So there's a sense in which somehow humanity is more directly a work of God. Mm-hmm. And so going back to where we, we were talking about um, the the um, women as a as a helper to God, I think that's bringing up the um, the issue of of the different roles of men and women. So and 
I'd, we'd love to talk more about this um, as as an Anglican priest, as as a woman who has you know, presides over worship and and teaches in your parish. Um, that's certainly something we're going to come back to after another song. So we are having a little bit of a belated celebration of International Women's Day and we have Emily in the studio who is an Anglican priest and we're going to find out a bit more about Emily's personal story. Or as much as we can squeeze into the next (laughs) 10 minutes. Um, But as as some of you may know, um, the Anglican Church in Australia has only been ordaining women for about 20 years. So um, I think maybe some people are still getting used to it, perhaps. Still getting used to it, but the issue is deeper than the question of women's ordination. Um, The story that I mentioned to you that I might tell actually comes from before I was ordained when I was not even studying yet. I was a laywoman um, with just the first faint stirrings of wanting to be really involved in the church. But I was baptised and I was a regular churchgoer. And um, I, I was dating a guy who belonged to another denomination. And in fact, we're now happily married and we both still belong to different denominations. And as far as we're concerned, this is fine. But we got married and we went on our honeymoon And we came back from our honeymoon and the first Sunday we were back, we did what we always did and went to church in our two separate churches. And the vicar bailed me up at the door on the way out and said to me, and I quote, I realise we might lose you, Em, but now that you're married, you need to worship under your husband's headship. Oh, please explain this word headship. (laughs) This is not a small topic. Um, But, I mean, it's interesting because it's something that, you know, Emily, you... you, um, understand and, and keep coming up against where it's it's not something that I encountered in my tradition. Okay. Broadly speaking, headship is a way of referring to a very patriarchal picture of family life. The idea that the husband is the head of the household and that the the wife and children are under his authority, under his headship is the, the classic term for it. Is that is that sort of is that a helpful beginning for yeah, that topic? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a very it seems like an old kind of very. Um, I mean, it's is it does it come from? Is this a, is this scripture? a biblical thing? Yeah. yeah. Where does it come from, or or is, is, it, or is just, it the other way around? Is it something that's come into religion from outside? Um, it's not a straightforward question to answer. Paul certainly talks about the husband as the head of the wife in a couple of key places, and. Then we have to unpack about uh, unpack what do we think Paul actually means by this? Because when we talk about somebody as, say, the head of the family or the head of the organisation, we have power assumptions built into the language about that. We assume that the head is the person who is in charge. What I found when I did quite a lot of in-depth work into this is that that was not a meaning that this word carried in the Greek of the time. There is no record of this word being used in a way which implied authority or control when paul talks about the husband of the head of the as the head of the wife it's more like um saying that the wife's social identity is embedded with his a bit like the river flowing out of the stream that the head of the stream that kind of image but there's no implication in any of the literature of the period of headship being about power control authority those are notions which we've built in later despite the fact that the headship language is absolutely Pauline. So, do you think it's it's um, is that perhaps is translation part of that issue that it's 
um, as it's gone into different different languages, it's taken on these other meanings. Um, not exactly, because it's the word head. There's no there's no issue or ambiguity about that. It's more what we understand that word to mean mm-hmm. um, in in social dynamics. So, have you encountered any other? Uh, gender stereotyped issues as a female priest not i'm fortunate in that i haven't had an awful lot of issues particularly around gender per se i did have some difficulties when i became a mum while i was in college okay i found that a system that had basically been built on the assumption of the young single unattached guy which is what seminaries traditionally took didn't cope very well with the married woman who came along and said, by the way, I'm pregnant and I need some flexibility around study commitments and field placements and, and all of that sort of stuff. And that was that was where the rubber hit the road for me and I think it does for other women too, this question of how do we have a family and, and do this very traditionally masculine role. Do you think it's something that is developing though, that it's not going to remain so traditional or is it something that that you know they're so set in their ways that they won't budge no it is developing and a large part of it is about women being stubborn enough to stick with it and to say well yes okay we can have a rotten semester but I'm coming back next semester and I'm not going away um yeah exactly (laughs) or you know um coming up for ordination well actually I I do want a job and I do want housing and I do expect the whole package that my male peers would have and and all of those kinds of things actually standing up and saying no if you're going to ordain us then we need models of ministry that incorporate more diverse personalities and lifestyles than just that that historical stereotypical male one. Yeah, definitely. So do you have any any words of wisdom for women who who are spiritual and feel like maybe, you know, their versions of the Bible aren't inclusive of them? Like what do you have to say to women out there? Oh gosh, you didn't warn me you were going to ask that. Ha ha ha. I'd say don't get stuck. If if you're in a tradition and I mean this very seriously and sincerely, actually. If you're in a tradition where you feel that this is not you and that you feel is denigrating of who you are, don't feel that God is confined to that tradition. There are other parishes, there are other denominations, there are other spiritual traditions. God is bigger than the community who are telling you that you are not good enough. That is perfect. What a great way to wrap that up. It's been a really, it's been a pleasure having you in our studio tonight, Emily. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I'm sure that if we got you back, we have a million more questions that we can ask you because a lot of those topics uh, could have gone on for days. Indeed. <laughs> and you are on the Spirit Lounge on Joy ninety four point nine, and we've been having awesome chats about International Women's Day and the Bible and feminism, and there's so much more we can go on about. So we will continue some women talks next week. Uh, but don't forget, the woods are coming up and we will be going out with Run the World by Beyonce, another incredibly powerful, strong woman who is singing this song just for women. So it's a big good night on the Spirit Lounge from Rachel, Claudine and Mark. Thanks for listening to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au.
Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.